It's the Growing for Market podcast. I honestly did not realize that compost was continuing to break down for such a long time. I think you said another five years, at least. That I mean, I love that idea. Yeah, the five years is just a rough number. I, I mean, it depends on climate and the type of soil and the type of compost and so on. But it, it's a rough idea. If people go with that, they'll give you a good idea that this is a long thing. And I think that's one of the big myths about compost. People think that I'm going to take this very rich compost and I'm going to put it in soil and suddenly my plants have access to all these nutrients. And that's a myth. The, the real value is not today's nutrients, it's tomorrow's nutrients, right? And that's one of the big difference between organic fertilizers and synthetic fertilizers, right? Is how quickly they actually make those nutrients available to plants. Hello, and welcome to the Growing for Market podcast, where we talk about all things market farming related. I'm Andrew Mefford, one of your hosts and editor of Growing for Market magazine. For 32 years, the magazine for veg and flower farmers. If you're enjoying the podcast, just wait till you see the magazine. Go to growingformarket.com for more. In a few minutes, we'll have shop talk with Neversink Farm, talking about farm tools with Connor Crickmore. We'll be chatting about new tools, old tools, how they can benefit your farm, and tips to use them successfully. NeverSync Farm makes this podcast happen with their generous support so it can come to you for free. And we think there's no better collaborator for a podcast by farmers for farmers than NeverSync Farm, where the tools are designed by farmers. So check them out at NeverSyncTools.com. Today, I have the pleasure to welcome Robert Pavlis to the podcast. Robert is a well-known speaker and educator with over 40 years of growing experience. He is the author of several books, including Building Natural Ponds and a whole series demystifying important growing topics, including soil science for gardeners, microbe science for gardeners, garden myths, and most recently, compost science for gardeners. He has a background in chemistry and biochemistry, which allows him to research topics and understand the underlying science behind things. He uses that understanding to present complex growing topics in an easy-to-understand style that is both informative and fun to read. I personally enjoyed his book, Plant Science for Gardeners, because I got all my plant experience working on farms. I never took a plant biology class in my life. So Robert's plant science book did a great job explaining to me the background and mechanics for a lot of the aspects of plant care that I was familiar with from farm experience, but didn't really understand the why behind the how to take care of plants. As the owner and head gardener of Aspen Grove Gardens, a six-acre botanical garden in southern Ontario, Canada, he grows over 3,000 varieties of plants. Now, most of our readers are at the small farm scale and up, so I want to make clear that we are not just talking about composting household food scraps. Household food waste is not enough to make a dent in the needs of even the smallest farm that is applying any amount of compost. So before we get into the details of making it, you point out in the book that there is some confusion of what compost even is. So to lead off, I wanted to make sure and ask you what good compost is and why it's good for plants. And part of the reason I ask is because in addition to the definition of compost at the beginning of your book, in Growing for Market magazine last year, we ran an article by Ellen Polishuk, who is a very experienced composter at farm scale. And one of the things that she points out in her article is that, at least here in the United States, commercially, the word compost has almost no official meaning. Subscribers can access that article now, but for those who are listening who aren't magazine subscribers, we'll make that article public 
you can find the link down in the show notes or on our website under free articles. So to quote that article, which was called Making Great Compost at Scale, the tried and true windrow system from the November, December 22 Growing for Market magazine, Ellen says, what do I mean by high quality compost? This is where almost no one wants to venture out in the world of compost making. The Compost Council of America has extremely loose definitions of compost. In fact, the only quality standard on their site that any certified compost reads, it must meet the EPA testing limits for heavy metals and pathogens for every seal of testing assurance certified compost product. So some labs offer a germination test and sometimes a CO2 generation test, but they don't have a standard to know if the compost is good. Ugh. And that UG is Ellen's UG in there. There is no standard for pH, for nutrient content, for soluble solids or conductivity, for moisture, for carbon to nitrogen ratio. Then there's the issue of particle size, which Ellen says she didn't worry about since she wasn't using wood chips. But if you are buying compost, you better worry about it, she says. So I take all that to mean if you're a grower, you've got to be really careful when you're buying compost because it could be anything from beautifully finished, sweet smelling, carefully made compost to incompletely composted, ammonia smelling, plant killing, only partially composted compost, which in itself may be a reason why people might want your book, Robert. Not everybody has access to good compost if they can even figure out what it is. So for some people, perhaps making compost is the only way to get the really good stuff. So Robert, what is good compost and what factors do growers need to consider when buying or making hopefully good compost? Well, almost any compost has some value. So uh, I'm not sure there really is bad compost, provided it doesn't have any toxic material in it. So the heavy metals would be an issue. There are some long-lasting herbicides that could be an issue. But assuming it doesn't have those things in it, any compost is better than no compost. I think what makes compost a better quality is when that material has a higher level of, uh, I'm going to call it plant material. And I'm excluding woody parts of that. So the difference between plant material, I'm thinking of grasses, hays, manures. Manures are really just partially decomposed plant material for the most part. So anything that came from a green herbaceous type plant, I think makes good compost. Now, there's nothing wrong with the woody material, except that wood has very low levels of nutrients in it. So you're getting the carbon components from the wood, but you're not getting a lot of nutrients. So wood is not a nutritious source, whereas green grassy material is. So the more of that that went into the compost, the better the quality of compost there is. But compost does a couple of different things. One is that it's adding carbon to the soil. So we want more carbon in our soil. So even woody products do that part of it. So that has value. So any compost is better than no compost. Okay. So, okay, in that case, if you were evaluating, let's say, a potential source where you're going to buy it from somebody else or making your own, what would take it from it's not bad compost to like what would make really good choice compost? The problem with buying compost is that you almost never get any information about what you're buying. So the manufacturer of that compost is just simply doesn't have information to give you. 
I mean, they might have some vague terms about what goes into it, but they really don't do a lot of testing. I mean, you're not going to get a detailed nutrient analysis of this compost. For one reason, it always changes. So someone making compost is very dependent on the stuff that arrives that goes into it. And there's variability in that. So they're not doing a lot of testing to make sure that each batch is identical to the last batch. Even things like the MPK on bags of uh, composted manure, for instance, it generally gives you the MPK value. But it's always the same, right? Every year you go to the store and buy that horse manure, it's a 111 or 0.5, 0 0.5, 0 0.5. Well, those numbers are on the conservative side because they, they don't want to over-advertise their product. But that bag, the material in that bag hasn't necessarily been tested, right? They just bring the stuff in, and every once in a while they'll test some, and yeah, it's kind of around 111, so that's good enough, and that's what you get. So you're not going to get that kind of information from any source of compost, at least not in bulk amounts. I mean, there may be some specialty stuff you can buy in bags that's really expensive that, that your readers wouldn't want to buy. But bulk stuff always changes. So you can get municipal compost. Well, municipal compost is whatever people put out to their curb to be picked up that, that are taken to the municipal composting facility. So again, it varies a lot. On the other hand, I'm not sure that a lot of that is that important. And I think one thing that people don't realize is that most of the ingredients going into compost are essentially the same. So we look at things like animals and microbes and plants, and we see very different organisms. But on a biochemical basis, they're very, very similar. You know, they all have proteins in there. They all have carbohydrates and sugars and enzymes. And so... I don't know what the number is, but I'm sure that 70% of their biochemistry is identical. And then there's that 30%, which is a little different. So plants have different hormones than, than animals and so on. But all that material is basically the same. And when we go through the composting process, it becomes even more the same. So those differences disappear as this material gets more and more composted. And at the final stage, when everything's fully composted, fully decomposed, they're identical. You can't tell the difference between a, you know, a dog and a pea plant, okay, once it's fully composted. So the concerns about, you know, what goes in and, and what is better, I know there's people who say, well, you know, we want comfrey in there because it has special properties, or we want these other ingredients at coffee grounds and so on. They have special ingredients. Most of that isn't important at the end of the process. It all ends up being very similar. Where there are differences is gross things. Like I mentioned, the wood products, that's sort of an issue. But other than that, there's very little difference once you're finished composting. That's the whole purpose of composting really is to take this material and turn it into something that plants can use. And plants can only use very simple things, right? They can only use the basic nutrients. They can't use the big stuff. So if I have two different sources of different, completely different plant material, or one's grass clippings and the other is manure, you know, there, there's no difference between those by the time I'm finished composting. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that makes sense because if someone pressed me to give a definition of compost, and I'm definitely not an expert, I would be pressed to say something like, it's 
organic matter that has broken down to the point where you can't tell what the original feedstock was in the first place, which is probably not a complete definition, but that makes a lot of sense in what you're saying as far as it's all broken down organic matter and it's not as important what it came from as that it's it's completely broken down. I mean, that definition is, is useful. I would point out one other thing that I think a lot of people get wrong and in this composting process. So we evaluate finished compost using our eyes, all right? So we start off with a banana peel. We can identify that. It looks like a banana peel. Then we go through this process, and now we have this black stuff that sits in our hand, and we think it's finished. We think that this composting process is completed, but I think that's wrong. The, the reason we think that and the reason we think it's no longer recognizable is because our eyes aren't very good. Our eyes can only see big stuff. On a molecular basis, that banana peel is still there. It's just starting its decomposition process. And when we take finished compost, for example, that will decompose for another five years. But during that five-year period, our eyes can't really see the difference as it changes. But chemically, it's still changing. So we have this term that we call finished compost. And that's a very loose term too. And in fact, scientifically, we don't have a good lab test to tell you when it's finished. We do have some tests, but we have various tests and they give different results. But there is no, there's no such thing as saying, well, today that compost is finished. Okay, a lab can't tell you that. Uh, because we we don't actually have a good single. It's not like measuring pH. Like I can measure pH very accurately, and I can say, oh, that's a seven point two five. And if I give it to a number of labs, they'll all come up with the same answer. But when I finish compost and I do different tests on it, people come up with different results. It's not a clear result. So gardeners look at it and say, well, it's finished when it looks finished. It's black. It's crumbly. I can no longer see the original ingredients then it's finished. But chemically, it's it's just on its way to becoming finished. And it still has a long way to go. Right? Okay, so it's gonna gonna keep aging like a fine wine for years to come. Speaking of feedstocks, the reality is that most vegetable or flower farms are not generating enough leftover scraps, vegetable scraps, leftover flowers, whatever, to make any useful amount of compost. So that means they're going to have to source compost feedstocks from somewhere. Can you point people in the direction of what the best feedstocks for compost are? Well, there's two things you want to get to. You want to get to the C and ratio, which we'll talk about a little later, I think. So that's important. So it's not like you can go out and buy one thing and say that's the perfect feedstock, although there probably are some that are pretty close to that. For most people, it's a matter of getting several sources of that information. Or, or those products. I always tell people, look, it doesn't matter what you put in here. So let's look at other factors. One factor is cost. So I'm assuming these people want to make large amounts of compost. So cost is important, which means that you need to source locally. The, the farther you ship this stuff, the more expensive it becomes. So you want to look locally and see what is available locally. You know, around here, I can get various kinds of manures fairly easily. You know, there's cow farms and horse farms nearby, and so manure is available. I could also get straw, which is relatively inexpensive, but it is one of the more expensive options 
because it's again bulky and and it's used for feed and so on so there's better uses than compost but you have to look at your local source for instance i just lived down the street from a brewery and if that brewery would sell the waste hops to me that would be a great source they don't actually do that but that would be a great source a little farther away from me is a mushroom farm and i can get mushroom compost from them Right. So I think the trick is to look locally and see what is available wherever you happen to live, because it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter as long as it came from plants and is somehow processed, dried, whatever. It doesn't really matter. There's no difference between that. So all those things I just mentioned would make good compost. I need to decide on which one is the easiest to get for me and what is the lowest cost to produce that compost. So that's how I would source it. And now let's talk farm tools with Connor of NeverSync Farm, our collaborator on this podcast. Hey, Connor, I've been to your farm, so I have seen how you guys do things. But uh, here we are, the end of April. By the time this launches, it's going to be the beginning of May. And I'm sure our listeners are prepping beds like crazy. And I know that you don't till, but I know that you use tilting a lot to prepare your beds. Can you tell us a bit how you use tilting in your bed prep process? You know, tilting is something that goes back. I mean, you can find it in the OED, tilter, tilting back to the 15th century, it was being used. And, you know, I think it kind of lost definition for a while, but came back, you know, the 50s. And there was mechanical tilters made for tractors and stuff. But Chadwick kind of connected it with this small-scale farming and with permanent bed systems. And, I mean, it's kind of strange because it kind of went away for a while, right, with tractors and gas-powered cultivators. But, you know, it's been coming back in the last five, six, seven years of permanent bed systems and tilting. And I think we don't think about it much and kind of think about the history of it. But it's got a very, very long history of, even in the French biointensive farming, of creating that tilth on top of a seabed. And so that's all we did inside the houses. And then we're like, I hate lugging that tiller around. And I have to keep reforming beds and remaking them. And I was like, you know, I don't have to do that inside. They're all permanent. And so that's how it all started was with tilting. And so now we tilt on every turnover. That's how we create the tilt on top of the beds. Because for me... You know, everybody's got a definition and I don't get involved in the dogma of no-till. But for me, it's just about not inverting the soil layers. And whether you're running a cultivator or using Alan Chadwick's tilting fork or you're using like the Iconoclast tilter that we produce, it's a great way to get, instead of having like compost and big, you know, because we, we put a lot of compost down as well as some amendments sometimes. And that's got to be kind of smoothed into the bed, worked into the bed. And I like a nice smooth bed to grid and stuff. And so we use it constantly. It's kind of a big part of our permanent bed system, just like uh, Chadwick, who, you know, I think of as like grandfather of organic farming in the United States. Yeah, I mean, great techniques he brought. I mean, I don't do a dollar double digging like he did, but, you know, he started off beds that way. But I think that's more for, you know, heavy clay soils. But anyway, that's my little history of <laughs> tilting, and not only here, but, uh, uh, you know, at Neversink Farm and in the United States. Quick, quick look. 
Yeah. Well, cool. Because, yeah, double digging, if anybody's ever tried it, <laughs> they know it is a pile of work. I mean, there's oh, yeah. no way to be efficient, uh, you know, and do high production if, you, if you're double digging <laughs> a lot of your beds. Okay. And so, Connor, am I right that y- the, the whole idea is your goal is to have fairly clean beds at the end of one crop? And so you don't need let's say a rototiller or anything like that, you can just put on some surface amendments and basically just rough them into the soil and and you're ready to go without the deep residue burying disturbance and stuff like that. Yeah, so we have a few ways of doing it. One way, if we do have stuff left over, let's say you have arugula or something, especially in the summer, then we have bed size silage tarps. We just put it over the top and then it just rots it to nothing. And then we can come with the, in just a few days that'll happen because it gets so hot under that black plastic and it doesn't get any oxygen. So it rots and then we can just come along and tilt that right in with a layer of compost on top of it. If we're just harvesting beets, there's not going to be much left, but we try to plant really close together. So we you know, get a lot of coverage on the bed. And then, yeah, we'll just tilt. Even small weeds, I'm not really worried about it. We'll, we'll cultivate up until, you know, they start getting a canopy. Then after that, the weeds are kind of small, so we'll tilt them in. And, but, I mean, it barely touches the bed because you, you, you only can get about that deep. So that's about how much compost we're putting on. And we like to make sure that any amendment we're adding is really even. And so it's really, really nice and, and even. But we stopped broad forking a few years ago. It's great for adding air, but, you know, we have sandy soil, so it just became really unnecessary for us. So really, it's, it's the only mechanical would be the tilther. Okay, well, that's interesting. I guess if you're not tilling deeply and compacting those layers, then I think I've heard a similar thing from a lot of other people is they don't, after getting their soils opened up, they don't need to do it every single time or perhaps at all once they got their beds in good shape, so... All right. Well, thanks for telling us about that, Connor. I'll let you get back to prepping your beds or whatever you're doing today. All right. Fantastic, man. All right. Thanks. Later, Armin. And now back to the show. As a general comment, I think manures are generally easy to get and they're a good starting ingredient. They generally have a relatively high amount of nitrogen, which we want, but it could be plant meals. For instance, in the southern U.S., uh, guessing a little bit here, but that's where the cotton's grown. And there's a product called cotton meal, which is a waste product of the cotton industry. So if you're living near a cotton farm, that could be a free source of material, and that's a great plant material source. So it's not like there's a top list of three or four things you should use you need to figure out which ones you can get. If you're not looking at making huge piles, then fall leaves is a great source because in cities, everyone puts them out to the curb and give them away for free. All you have to do is go pick them up. But of course, you have to go pick them up. And so, you know, it's a question of how much you need. If you're just making a few piles, that's a great source. If you're making, you know, 500 cubic yards of this stuff, that may take too much effort to pick it up. But that fall refuge is is a great organic source to start with. So look locally and use whatever you've got. Yeah. Uh, well, that yeah, that's a great suggestion right there because I think whether our listeners are in a rural area or in an urban area, oftentimes there are businesses that are generating organic matter, either byproducts that they can get for free or hopefully not real expensive. Like where I am in Maine, there's a lot of logging and there's some places locally where you can buy like Mm -hmm. shredded wood and the, you know, the byproducts of after they've made 
the logs into timber. I know some farmers in big nut growing areas in, in the Southwest United States who, who can get like nutshells and nut byproducts and things like that. And I'm thinking urban areas, like you mentioned the brewery, there's actually, if you think about it, there's all, a lot of our growers are trying to start farms in close to their customers. And so you may have, yeah, a brewery or some other business that you might not necessarily think of in an urban area that's actually generating a fair amount of, of organic matter that they might be happy to get rid of. So that's a great suggestion. Well, as long as we're talking about the feedstocks, what about ratios? I always hear people talk about ratios of brown to green ingredients. And in the book, you talk about the myth of the ratio of browns and greens. What do people tend to get wrong about the ratio of browns and greens? Well, the first thing is that composting has nothing to do with browns and greens. And there really is no ratio of browns and greens. What has happened is that we've, we've done some science. And what the science has learned is that it's important to get the carbon-nitrogen ratio correct. And we know what that ratio should be. And then gardeners have come along and said, well, that's too complicated, carbon and nitrogen. We don't understand that. So let's simplify things and talk about browns and greens. What they've really done is they've complicated the process, even though they're trying to simplify it. So from a gardener's perspective, it's much easier to look at something and say, oh, this is brown, this is green, and, and then I'll use the same ratio. But that ratio is a CN ratio, carbon-nitrogen ratio. It's not a brown-green ratio. There is no such thing as a brown-green ratio. What the brown-green refers to is that if things are green, they probably have high nitrogen, but not necessarily. If they're brown, they probably have high carbon, but not necessarily. So manure is brown, but it's actually a green. Right? Coffee grounds are brown, but it's actually a green too because it has high nitrogen. So the color alone doesn't even tell you whether an item is a brown or a green. It's a silly designation, really. You need to go back and look at the CN ratio, and particularly for your audience, because they're going to look at doing larger amounts. Okay, For a backyard gardener who's doing a little pile, it's not so important. Go with the browns and greens. But there is no brown-green ratio. What people should be doing if they're more serious about composting is looking up the CN ratio. Where does the CN ratio actually come from? Well, it goes back to the fact that all composting is done using microbes. The microbes want food. They're eating in this compost pile. It turns out that microbes live the happiest when the ratio is about 25. So the CN ratio is 25, which means there's 25 molecules of carbon for every molecule of nitrogen. That's when they're the happiest. So what we do is when we start the pile, we aim for something like 30, which is a bit too much nitrogen, but that's okay. That gets the thing started. And when we're finished composting, we're down around 20. Right? So the during the process, carbon is lost to the air, CO2, and the CN ratio slowly changes, but it starts at 30, ends up at 20, and 25 is that happy medium where the bugs are really happy. And that's why we do it that way. So the goal is to look at each ingredient you have, figure out what the CN ratio of that ingredient is, and then you can go through and do some calculations to figure out how much of that to put into your pile so you start with a CN ratio of 30. Now, that's actually quite complicated, and that's one of the things I did in the book. I actually give you three different ways to do that. One of the reasons it's complicated is, is that you don't actually know what the ratio is because you're not going to send it to a lab for testing. 
And if you look at lists that are available, they, they generally have a range, right? So wood is, I can't remember the numbers, but it's something like between 150 and 300. That's a pretty big range. So that's one problem. The second problem you have is that these were all developed by scientists. And when scientists do things, they work on weights. Okay? And these are dry weights. So if I take a green blade of grass and weigh that, that doesn't give me the dry weight. I have to dry it first to get the dry weight. And of course, gardeners and farmers aren't going to do that. So those ratios are based on dry weight. So you actually have to take the weight of this into account. So you say, okay, the, let's say the, the ratio of green grass is a 10, CN ratio of 10, but we have to account for the moisture in there. So when I weigh my grass, I have to correct it for the dryness, and then I have my CN ratio. Well, that makes the calculations really complicated. There's two problems. One is gardeners don't want to dry stuff, and, and two, they don't want to weigh it either. We work in volumes. We work in wheelbarrow folds, bucket folds. If you're doing a lot, you're going to have a little excavator with a front loader bucket. You want to do things in volume, not weights. So what I've done in the book is I've taken that complicated one and I've provided a simple one that's based on volume. It basically consists of taking your input ingredients and putting it into three piles. So one is very high carbon and one is high nitrogen and one is sort of in the middle. And then there's a very simple formula for mixing that. And I've already corrected for the moisture levels on those things. But getting that CN ratio absolutely correct isn't important. If it's close the process will start. In fact, even if it's not close, the process will start. It will just go very slowly, right? So for example, if we take fall leaves, they're brown and they actually have low amount of nitrogen in there. So there's not enough nitrogen to get us to a ratio of 30. Fall leaves are probably somewhere around 100. We want to be at 30. So you have a couple options. You can just pile them up and do nothing and they will compost, but they will take time. It's a slow process there's too much carbon. There's not enough nitrogen to feed the microbes to get them going. Or we can take that brown leaves and add a bunch of nitrogen. So they'll break down, just not quickly. That's right. They Everything composts. So you don't need any kind of ratio. It all composts eventually. You take a tree, which is really high carbon. If it falls in the forest, it composts eventually. What we're generally interested in when we're making compost is to speed up the process because we don't want to wait three, four years. We, we want compost I can use in a few months. And so the closer we get to that ratio, the faster it will go. So what I do with my brown leaves is I just add some nitrogen and get the ratio close and suddenly it, the composting happens really fast. So that's the importance of the ratio, not to compost, but to compost quickly. And the closer we get to the right ratio, the faster our compost will happen. So it's a speed issue. It's not that we need that ratio to compost. We need it if we want fast compost. Okay. And so I'm thinking best case scenario, it's not like growers hopefully are recalculating this every single time. You know, I'm thinking based on what we were just talking about, hopefully lining up some organic matter, say byproducts or cheap things you can buy. Hopefully you can get down to some readily available sources like, let's say, horse manure and spoiled straw or something like that. So you do the calculations the first time. I'm thinking you do the calculations, you let the process go. And if I'm, you tell me if I'm, I'm wrong about this, Robert, but I'm thinking you don't get enough nitrogen in there and it'll just compost very slowly. And 
if you have too much nitrogen, what is going to happen if you, if you, let's say you've built, you're making this mixture for the first time and, and it's, there's actually too much nitrogen in there. What does that compost pile look like? So that's another approach you can take. You just pile up your stuff and watch it. All right. So if you have too much nitrogen, the bacteria in there will start producing ammonia and you'll be able to smell it. it smells kind of like urine. Yeah, yeah. Right. So when you go out and, and check your pile, if it if you can smell that you've added way too much nitrogen. And of course, that's bad for two reasons. One is it goes in the air and causes greenhouse gases. And second, you're losing your most important nutrient, the nitrogen. We we don't want to lose that. We want all the nitrogen back into our soil. If you don't have enough, then it won't get hot. A good example of that is grass clippings. If you take grass clippings, which have a fairly high nitrogen level, and you pile them up, what happens? Well, they get all slimy and stinky. And you can tell right away, you can smell the ammonia coming off those. Well, that's because the ratio is way too low. The ratio is somewhere around 10. And there's way too much nitrogen and it starts off-gassing. And that's what we're smelling. That's the stinky part. Okay, so if you smell that, you've added too much nitrogen. If your compost isn't heating, then you don't have enough nitrogen. So you add a little nitrogen to it and to speed things up and you'll also get heating that way. So you can adjust it to some extent once the process started. So you pile it up, you mix it, and you wait a couple of days and see what happens. If there's no heat, not enough nitrogen. Mm -hmm. It's never a lack of microbes, by the way, which is another whole myth. And you say it's never a lack of microbes. Is that just because micro microbes are endemic? They're everywhere. And it's it's just a matter of giving them what they want to eat to get them active? Yeah. We don't see microbes for the most part. There are so many millions and millions of microbes. Okay. So if you take a speck of soil, okay, just a tiny, tiny little speck in your palm of your hands, it's got a billion bacteria in there. Okay. It's got a million fungi in there. So a big pile of, of stuff is just covered. Everything is covered. Your hands are covered. The leaves are covered. The wood chips you're putting, everything you put in there is covered with billions and billions and billions of microbes. Okay. This idea that you have to put in a starter concoction of microbes uh, is just silly. Okay. Your, your compost pile is so full of microbes, you don't need them. Yeah, I've, I've heard that kind of statistic before, and it always blows my mind. It's hard for me to imagine how many microbes are actually in everything. So let's say you if you have piled up grass clippings or a pile of manure and you smell that ammonia. So you really don't want that, right? Because that's the smell of your nitrogen fertilizer leaving. And, and like you said, we don't want it to get in the atmosphere, but also we want it to stay in that compost to be to feed our plants. So if people smell that, if people can tell that their pile is too hot, they smell the nitrogen coming off of it, would you recommend them just to throw some more carbon on the pile and, and remix it? Or is there a way they can remedy that? That's the only way you can fix it. So, you know, next year, don't do that. Put in more carbon or right away, put in a bunch of carbon and take your pile apart add some carbon, mix it up again. And as soon as you do that, then that smell will go away. Do you recommend people to use, say, a probe thermometer or something like that to monitor the temperatures on the inside of the pile, even if they don't have to, say, meet organic certification, just to see what's going on deep down there in the, in the pile? I think unless you need it for certification, I wouldn't bother, partly because you can stick your hand in there and get a pretty close reading partly because it's really not that important. Whether we get to that temperature or not really doesn't make a lot of difference. The, the reason the certification probably asked for it is that when you get up to a certain temperature 
for a period of time, you do start killing off pathogens. And that's probably why they're doing it. So you're saying, okay, you get to 140 for a day, you've killed off a certain amount of pathogens. A lot of those pathogen killing things don't make a lot of sense. I know people are very concerned about pathogens. And so certification programs include that. But again, what pathogens are you, you killing off? Like, you know, E. coli can make you sick. Streptococcus can make you sick. It's everywhere. Okay, it's in your soil, it's on your plants, it's everywhere. The fact that you've killed them in the compost pile doesn't make any difference because they're on the soil anyways. So a lot of that killing off pathogens really doesn't make a lot of sense. It's, it's more of a psychological thing. It's a government safety thing, right? We have to be as safe as we possibly can for everyone. If someone does get sick by eating something in the garden, we can say, well, at least we certified the, the compost was safe. For the average person, I wouldn't worry about it. Again, part of it may depend on speed. So if I need to make this really fast and I need to make really large amounts, that's different. Then the thermometer can help me because then I can monitor things more closely and I can spend time with it. I can get the water level just perfect and the ingredient ratio just perfect and so on. And I can fine tune my process to make it faster and faster all the time, which is great if you're a commercial compost producer. But if I sort of need a, a big pile for my garden every year, that's not that important. I mean, speed isn't that critical to me. So it really depends on what your goal is. You can make very fast compost if you do it very precisely, but you don't need to. And for most people, I don't think speed's that critical. Okay. I wanted to talk a little bit about why compost is so good for plants. In the book, you talk about healthy soil, which will contribute to healthy plants. And I wanted to talk about how compost contributes to healthy soil and plants. You say in the book, in the early stages of composting, you find big pieces of organic matter, a whole leaf or an apple core. These all contain nutrients, but they are tied up in the form of large molecules in complete cells. None of these nutrients are available to plants. As decomposition takes place, cells and large molecules are broken down into smaller and smaller pieces until ions are released. It is only then that plants can use these nutrients. So I know that's the explanation right there, but how does compost make nutrients available to plants? Is it simply that taking them from their constituent pieces as an apple core, banana peel, no, straw, manure, and then breaking them down to, is it all about making them in the nutrients in those constituent materials a form that plants can use? Compost does a number of things for us. So the one you're talking about is actually releasing nutrients. So the way that happens is, is that every, everything organic is made up of large molecules. So proteins have nitrogen in them. Plants can't use that nitrogen. It's, it's tied up in these huge... Proteins are thousands of atoms big. Plants can't use that. So microbes come along and they slowly degrade that protein and they, they break it down into smaller and smaller pieces and then into amino acids, which plants may be able to use, but that's not their main nitrogen source. Until the microbes break that down and release the nitrogen as a nitrate molecule, plants can't use it. So this is happening all the time and it happens for a long period of time. That banana peel you start with will take five years before all that nitrogen is released. And during that five-year period, a little bit is released all the time as the microbes go about their business. So one of the advantages of compost is that it slowly 
adds nutrients to the soil over a long period of time. So that's one of its benefits. That's a benefit compared to, say, synthetic fertilizer that adds it all at once. Compost is adding it over a long period of time. But the flip side is that when I take a pile of compost and I put it in my soil, it doesn't add a whole bunch of nutrients right away. So if I mix it up over the first week, it adds virtually nothing. Okay, It's adding it over a long period of time, many years, not over a week. The second thing compost does for me is that it has something called a high CEC, cation exchange capacity. So compost actually holds on to these nutrient ions. So once the nitrate's released, it normally goes through the soil very quickly with the water, but it sticks to the compost. So compost and clay both have high CECs. That means that they hold on to the nutrients and they hold on to them near the plants and the plant roots can come and get those nutrients. They can take the nutrients off of the compost and use it. But the compost keeps it locally where the plant roots are. So that's a really critical thing that it does. The third thing it does is that because of this long-term decomposition, it's constantly feeding the microbes. So think of compost as microbe food. They're constantly decomposing this, which means that the level of microbes in our soil also goes up when we add compost because now we're feeding those microbes. So all soil has a certain level of microbes. And if we want to increase that level, the only thing we can do is to actually feed them. And so the compost is microbe food. So I'm going to put a pile of manure or compost of manure in here, and now it's going to feed those microbes for years. And during that process, the microbes grow and they multiply and you get more of them. As the amount of compost in soil goes up, the, the number of microbes goes up. And that adds all kinds of benefits to plants. So those are the three main benefits. The other one is, is moisture holding. So particularly in sandy soil, compost holds moisture where sand doesn't. So if we're adding compost to a sandy soil, it actually increases the amount of moisture that's available for plants. Yeah. Okay. So over time, you're really optimizing your soil, especially if you have really sandy soil or something like that. I can see how that's you're making a contribution every year by adding Let's say you have sand and it's low in nutrients and it drains really quickly. Adding a little compost every year is gradually increasing the nutrient holding capacity and water holding capacity of that soil. And so that makes a lot of sense to me in that I honestly did not realize that compost was continuing to break down for such a long time. I think you said another five years at least. That I mean, I love that idea. Yeah, the five years is just a rough number. I, I mean, it depends on climate and the type of soil and the type of compost and so on. But it, it's a rough idea. If people go with that, they'll give you a good idea that this is a long thing. And I think that's one of the big myths about compost. People think that I'm going to take this very rich compost and I'm going to put it in soil and suddenly my plants have access to all these nutrients. And that's a myth. Okay. The, the real value is not today's nutrients. It's tomorrow's nutrients. Right. And that's one of the big difference between organic fertilizers and synthetic fertilizers, right, is how quickly they actually make those nutrients available to plants. Yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of the talk I hear about compost is talking about it more like fertilizer, you know, like, but that's a great image. You know, the image I have in my mind now is that we're going to put down compost this year and it's going to continue to have value over the next five years. And so if we put some down every year, 
then we'll have compost in all different stages of decomposition. So in five years, we'll be playing the long game and we're st- we'll still be benefiting from the compost that we put down this year. So that's a, I think that's a very helpful idea, should be a helpful idea for growers. Can you use too much? In the, in the book, you say small amounts of compost around one inch a year are good for the garden and will avoid toxic phosphorus levels. And so growers who use a lot of compost year after year can get phosphorus levels, which are too high, which it seems like, you know, it may sound like the kind of problem that you want too much phosphorus until you actually have it. But as you know, too much of most nutrients ends up restricting or causing problems with the the plant and uptake of other nutrients, right? So it sounds like you're in the book, you're counseling another tactic. I've heard people say, apply compost up to the level that will meet your phosphorus needs and then use other fertilizers that aren't high in phosphorus to meet if you have other NK or other, you know, micronutrient needs. So other than maxing out the phosphorus, can you use too much? Can you overdo it with compost? Well, you can overdo it. And the reason is mostly because of high phosphate levels. If you're starting a new area, then putting more on is not a problem. If you're starting a new garden area and you're, you know, you're digging up for the first time, you know, put six inches of compost in there and dig it in. That's not too much. Well, you don't want to do that is every year. So you can have too much. And it is becoming more and more of a problem in gardens that the, the phosphate level gets too high. Now, the reason it gets too high is, is it's kind of interesting, too. One is that phosphate doesn't really move through the soil very quickly. It basically stays where it is, whereas all the other nutrients go with water and, and flow through. Phosphate doesn't. It stays there. So every year you add it, you're adding more, and the stuff that didn't get used up last year is still there. So that's one problem. The other problem is that compost, particularly if it's based on manure, has ratios of somewhere around 1, 1, 1 the MPK ratio. But what plants actually want is a, something in the order of 3-1-2. So they want a lot more nitrogen than phosphate. But when we add compost, we're giving them equal amounts of nitrogen and phosphate. So it's like feeding them the wrong kind of diet, although we're not really feeding plants, but we're, we're putting those nutrients in the soil. So we're putting in too much phosphate for the nitrogen we're putting in. For us to put in enough nitrogen for the plants, we're going to put in too much phosphate because the ratio is 1-1. So there's no way around this. If, if you're trying to only use compost, you're always going to be low on nitrogen. So a little bit is good. And then if you need more of other things, add those nutrients that you really need. And I think it's very important, particularly for your customers who are doing, you know, you're producing food and you want a fairly good productivity right, you really should get the soil tested and then add only the nutrients you need. The complication, of course, is that most soil tests don't test for nitrogen. So that's the nutrient that's probably deficient, and that's the one that labs don't test for. And the reason they don't test for it is that it just changes too fast. Now, agricultural farms can get soil tested for nitrogen. It is more expensive, and you have to actually freeze your soil sample. So you take go out, take the soil sample, you freeze it, you send it to the lab frozen. They keep it frozen until they analyze it. If you don't freeze it, the nitrogen changes too fast. Okay, So there is a process that you can get your nitrogen tested in your soil, but for most standard soil tests, they don't do nitrogen. So that's a separate issue, but you're not going to solve that with compost. That would be the thing is you got to, you can't just rely on compost. You need to find some way to get more nitrogen. You, then it's just in compost to make your plants happy. Yeah. 
what do you think about covering compost piles? I know I've I've talked to a lot of growers who will get like a fleece blanket or some impermeable membrane. I guess, and I, I'm particularly thinking in parts of the country that have regular rainfall, a lot of them don't want to get the pile too wet. And maybe they're also worried about leaching out the nutrients in the pile. But what do you think about that? Should growers be using a, a cover on their compost piles? Well, I think growers should know why they're using it. That's the bottom line. There's no right answer here. Some should use it and some shouldn't. So, okay. for instance, if you're living in colder climates and you want to compost, you know, in the spring and fall when the weather's cold, covering it will actually get you to a higher temperature. So in those in cool climates, people use it for heat. The nutrients are released as this composting process happens. And if you get a lot of rain, the rain does wash those out particularly nitrogen and potassium get washed out. So you lose those nutrients. They go into the ground, but they're probably in an area where you don't care if you add more nutrients, right? Because that's the area you do your composting, not where you're growing. So you're losing those nutrients. So areas that have a lot of rainfall will cover them for that reason. The other reason you want to keep the rain out is that compost works best when the moisture ratio is right. So if they're too dry, it doesn't compost. And if it's too wet, it doesn't compost. There's that sweet spot in the middle. When you reach in and grab some compost and squeeze it, it should feel moist, but you shouldn't get any drops of water out of it. Wet compost doesn't compost well. So if you're in a rainy season or a rainy area, then you cover it to keep the rain off to keep your compost drier. But if you grow in a dry area, you might keep it uncovered because you want that moisture because you don't want your compost getting too dry. So I think the key is for people to know why they're covering it and what problem they're trying to solve. So learn how to make good compost and then do whatever you need to do to make good compost, right? And temperature and moisture are two of the things that are important for making good compost. Well, I, yeah, I appreciate that because that's, as with so many of the things that we talk about in agriculture, it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. I think that's a lot more helpful to growers than than some kind of one size fits all, you know, recommendation. You know, one of the things that you talk about in the book that I hadn't heard a whole lot about is the curing stage of compost. But before we talk about the curing stage, I know earlier in the interview you said that when compost is done is a, a very soft term because it can be done for a very long period of time, but in order to be able to say like, oh, this compost is done, maybe we want to cure it a little bit. Let's say people have found their feedstocks, they've been composting. How would they evaluate compost for an initial stage of doneness where they could either apply it if they really needed it or start curing it if they were going to cure it? So I, I think the first thing that people have to understand is that there there is no real endpoint to this. It's it's sort of a continuous process. We have come along and said, well, arbitrarily we're going to put this line here and say when we reach this point, we're going to call it finished. And we do that because we want to use this stuff, right? So we've piled it up, we're taking care of it. It gets to a certain point where now we can use it, and that's what we call finished compost. Is it important to cure it, or could you use it sooner? Well, again, it, it comes down to what do you want to do with it. If I'm getting my garden ready for next spring and it's fall now and I'm going to dig in a bunch of compost, well, I can use really fresh stuff because it's going to sit there all winter and spring anyways. It doesn't matter. If I'm applying it as a mulch, I can use fresher stuff than if I'm digging it into where the roots are going to be. 
right? If I'm digging it in and planting right away, particularly seeded plants, I have to be careful that it's not too fresh because fresh compost can burn plant roots, right? So if I'm putting it in today and I'm going to seed tomorrow, I got to make sure it's it's really finished. I don't want to use stuff that's fresh. So how do you know when it's ready? Well, there is a test that growers can do very easily. What you do, I actually have a video on my YouTube channel show you how to do that. What you basically do is take soil and compost, mix it 50-50, put it in a pot and put some seeds in it and pick something that germinates easily. I like I pick peas usually because I have them around, uh, beans work, anything that germinates quickly. Put them in. If they grow normally, then it's ready to go. If they come up, they either don't germinate or they come up and they're, they're deformed, the leaves are crinkled or the stems don't grow right or it's not elongating correctly and so on, then that's not finished. If you put seeds into compost that is too fresh, they won't grow right. And in fact, what you should do is two pots, right? One pot, just soil, and one pot, soil and compost, 50-50, and compare them. And you'll see right away, if, if you can't tell the difference, that compost is ready to go. You don't have to cure it anymore. But if the compost is affecting the seedlings, it will affect it in a negative way, then it's not ready. But as I said, it, it could be ready to uh, say you're putting it on in the middle of summer and you're just mulching around mature plants. It can be much fresher. If you're burying it and you're not going to plant for a little while, it can be fresher. So there's no rule about that either. Now, if you're a commercial operation, you're going to sell it, then then you might look at it differently. But if you're using it yourself, I recommend using it as soon as you can. I mean, why leave it laying around in a big pile? The sooner you use it, the more nutrients you're going to get into your soil. And what's going on when, let's say you, you do your side-by-side test, You've got your one cup is is potting soil. Plant looks beautiful. You got one cup that's half potting soil, half compost. And like you said, it's the plant is messed up. It's exhibiting problems. What's going on that the compost is too fresh and is damaging that that plant's roots? It could be two things. It could be that the compost is too warm. It's it's composting away and creating too much heat. Probably not the issue. The issue probably is that it's just releasing too many nutrients. So what happens is that earlier on in the process, it releases nutrients faster. And as the compost gets more and more mature, it slows down and releases nutrients slower. So in that early stage where you're getting a lot of heat in your compost pile, things are happening really fast. The microbes are chewing this stuff up really quickly and releasing a lot of nutrients. So if you release this too long, it's like putting too much fertilizer on your seedlings. It will damage them. Right. Okay. So just like it's the same problem as if people overapplied fertilizer and burned the roots, it's that the compost is too fertile and has burned the roots. Makes sense. And what is the point of a curing stage? That was something that I hadn't, I wasn't real familiar with before I read your book. I think that's more of a a commercial thing that you want it to a point where it's it's very stable. You're not creating any heat. Uh, you're not creating a lot of nutrients. And you, you want to get it to that point. For home use and, and for farm use, I don't think you have to cure it. I don't think there's much benefit in it. You want to use it as soon as you can. One of the reasons I put that in the book, too, is that some people use that compost in their potting mix to grow seedlings. It's very common in, in the UK for some reason. 
If you're doing that, then it's much more important that you wait till this compost is very stable. You want to cure it so there's no chance that this is too hot for your seedlings. In a sense, making sure that it's not too hot to burn your plants, part of that could just physically making sure that it's not too hot. Okay, so Bokashi is something that I hadn't, I had never heard of until recently, and but I feel like it's one of those things that I, I hear more and more about. I know in the book you say Bokashi can be done in small batches in the home or as very large batches in a farm setting. Can you just tell us what Bokashi is? And is there any reason that a grower would be particularly interested in doing Bokashi versus the sort of what I think of traditional composting, the way that we've we've talked about it this the, for the entirety of the interview so far? So our traditional composting and, and what is more popular in North America is an aerobic process. So we want air in this pile. We're using microbes that breathe oxygen. That's a different chemical process than Bokashi. Bokashi is a fermentation process. So in, in Kashi, what we're doing is we're going to use a different type of microbe that grows best when there is no oxygen available. So it tends to be done in North America. We're starting to do it in small batches and containers and so on. But in Asia, it's very commonly done on the farm. And so they'll take a pile of manure and pile it up or other ingredients. It doesn't have to be manure, but that's a common source for them. And then they'll inoculate it with these lactic acid bacteria, what we call lab. Those like to grow anaerobically. And they go through a different chemical process. They're doing fermentation. It still breaks the material down, but it's a different chemical process. So they tend to cover these piles to keep the air out. They put in a different starting mixture of these bacteria. And so they do Bokashi in big piles. My honest feeling is that at the end of the process, they both produce the same thing. Okay, they're both releasing the same nutrient ions. They're just getting there in a different way. Regarding potential co contaminants in compost, you go through a number of them in the book. What are common contaminants of compost? And are there any things that growers could be exposed to, um, even if they're careful about their sources? And is there anything that people could be getting as a contaminant in the compost that they didn't realize because of their feedstock? I think the problem we have is that there are a lot of perceived problems and then there are real problems. And it sort of depends on which side of the fence you're on. Some people are afraid of everything. There, you know, there are lots of potential problems. So if we're going to use some manure and that cow was injected with an antibiotic, some people are extremely concerned about those antibiotics. I'm not. Because, first of all, it's a very, very small amount. There are regulations about how many antibiotics you can give to cows. And then there's no indication that plants actually absorb antibiotics in the soil, even if they even survive the composting process. So it's, it's a non-issue. But psychologically, people think it is, and they're concerned about this. So they won't use manure that has antibiotics in it. And if you're an organic farmer, then in fact, that's important. You can't use manure from a farm that's used antibiotics. That's 
one of those things that can't be an organic growing system. I don't think that's a real problem. There are a couple things that are of concern. One is that there are some herbicides that are long lasting. So most herbicides are gone in a couple months and they're really not a concern, but there are some herbicides that will be around for a while. And in fact, they last for about three years. And those herbicides are used on feedstock for animals and it doesn't harm the animal. It just passes through them. Okay. And so it's not a problem for humans either, because if we got to it, which we probably don't, it would just pass through us. It doesn't harm us. But what it does do is kill plants. So we take that manure from the cow that ate this food, and then we make compost from it, and it survives the composting process. Now we put it on our plants, and we'll actually harm our plants. Okay, so that is a real problem, because it will last in compost or soil or manure for two to three years. And until it's out of the system, it harms plants. You have to know where you're getting that source. And same with straw, but those things can be sprayed with those herbicides as well. And you have to make sure that that is not on any of your input ingredients. The idea of heavy metals and so on, well, people don't realize that all soil has heavy metals in it. All plants have heavy metals in it. Those really aren't a big issue either, unless someone's been growing, you know, some hay in, in a polluted field that was used for smelting or something, which is unlikely to happen. So heavy metals are generally not a problem. Yeah, most of the other things are really not a major concern. I don't see your people using a lot of paper products. There are some concerns there. There's some concern with chlorine in paper products. That's really a non-issue either. Plastics shouldn't be a problem for most of the things you're collecting. So most of the other things aren't an issue. Okay, so it sounds like the take home here is know your feedstocks, right? And, and ask questions. And instead of just buying straw and thinking like, okay, great, it's straw, there's no plastic in it or anything, ask, ask has it been sprayed with a herb, herbicide or those kinds of things? Because we have had a few articles over the years in the magazine from some gr- growers who had bought, say, hay or straw for composting or for mulching and had had really bad problems with um, stunted and killed plants from those long-lasting herbicides. Uh, that's a real thing that still happens, and um, that's, a, that's a very good suggestion. Know your feedstocks, I guess. Well, this has been a really good interview. We've been talking for a while, but I just wanted to make sure and ask quickly about troubleshooting. So what are the most common problems people have with getting their composting to work out right, and what are some of the most common solutions? Well, the most common one is one we've already talked about is getting that nitrogen ratio right. If you're not getting your temperature high enough and you feel that's important, you need more nitrogen. You, you just don't have enough in there. Now, it doesn't have to get high. I, I think there's very little real benefit to getting the higher temperature, except that it, it happens faster. You can make very good compost at lower temperatures. Certainly, most backyard gardeners don't get high temperatures because you need a good-sized pile to get a higher temperature. Uh, you need to spend some time to make sure your ratios are right, and most people don't do that. But if you're serious and you want fast compost, that's the main thing you have to watch is that ratio. Yeah, we talked about turning as well. You want some air in there and so on. But the nice thing about compost is that it, it happens anyways. And so one of the things you want to do is to figure out how fast do I need this compost? And if it's not really that urgent, then you can spend a lot less effort on the composting process. Just just let it happen and do its own thing. 
you want to make a lot and you want to make it fast or your space is limited and you need several batches a year, then make it fast and, and you can make very fast compost. Okay. Is there anything I'm missing there of how to use compost? Do you recommend people just to just put some on every year, sort of like, like you were saying earlier, to, to put something in the bank, sort of like something for today and something for the future? Just put on a little bit, like I think in the book you mentioned putting on an inch inch a year, which sounds along the lines of a lot what a lot of other people have recommended. Is that the best use of it, just to put a little bit on every year and keep paying that nutrient uh, bank forward? I think it depends a bit on what stage you're at in developing your soil, right? So if, if this is a new garden and the soil is pretty crappy, digging it in makes a lot of sense. So the first couple of years, you might do that. As your soil gets a little better, then the easiest way to use it is to put it on as a mulch. And that's particularly useful if you're a no-till gardener. You don't want to till that soil anyways because that adds all kinds of other problems. So ideally, you just put it on a mulch and nature will take it into the soil and then you put it on again and just plant directly into it. As, as you're planting, you mix it up a little bit anyways. So some of it gets gets disturbed and gets mixed in. But I'm a big believer in, in no-till. And the easiest way to do that then is just mulch with it. Okay. And so if, if people are put, mulching with the compost, of course, the compost that's right on the surface is going to get rained on. It's going to get beaten on by the sun. Are the fertility and the microbes in that top layer of compost, are they just going to get washed deeper down in the soil? To some extent. The nutrients will get washed down, which we want anyways. And some of the microbes will, but most of them, will, most of them are stuck on the compost. They're not going to have a big problem on there. They'll just keep digesting it. Where you'll find most of the microbes is actually where the soil level and the compost meet because that will have more moisture there and it'll be a little cooler there and, and that's where they'll be most active. Okay. Well, I've really enjoyed this discussion. I think it's going to be helpful for growers. Before we go, I just want to make sure and ask you if there's anything else that I should have asked you about or anything that you want to talk about on the topic before we go. I think we covered quite a bit. I think what it's important is that we use waste product. From an ecological point of view, we want to use waste product. We don't want to grow stuff to compost. That, to me, makes no sense whatsoever. We have enough organic waste material around, and, and we want to use what we have. We want to use it locally so that we're not shipping around the country. It, it always bothers me when you, you know, we can buy bags of stuff here that were made in California and shipped up to Ontario. I mean, that makes no sense when we have stuff here we can use. <laughs> so it's important to buy locally. And other than that, it's, it's an understand the actual organic process. And I think that's uh, where a lot of people don't understand compost well is try to get understand then more of the chemistry that takes place there. Uh, a lot of people think that anything we put on the soil gets absorbed by plant roots. That's not really true. I think you'd mentioned the other book, the, the Plant Science, right? Talks about uh, plant roots and what they absorb and so on. And it's important that you understand those processes. And I think people will be much less scared of some of these things that, that are in our soil. The microbes are really important too. In fact, one comment I should make, you had mentioned at the beginning, I also have a book called Microbe Science for Gardeners. And I think you were talking to my publisher. Uh, that book's actually not out yet. It will be out this fall. So if people go looking for that book. 
it's written, it's at the printer sort of thing, but it's, it won't be out, I don't know, let's call it September, October, hopefully. And that's another whole subject that's really important is the microbes play such a critical role in plant growth. And there are many myths about that. There's, there's just lots to learn about microbes. But microbes are actually key to this whole process. They're the ones that are building your soil. So when your soil gets better and more crumbly and darker, those are all actions by the microbes. So they're critical to this, this whole process. And unfortunately, like all other parts of gardening, there's so many myths about microbes. And that's actually one of the things I do is uh, I enjoy myth busting and I focus on garden myths and figure out what is true and what is not true and, and so on. Yeah, it's been fun. It's been great. So appreciate being here. Yeah, we really appreciate you making time to sit down with us, thinking we should have you back on the pod when that micro book comes out, because you're right, I was looking at the New Society page. I, I guess I didn't look closely enough. They have it listed up there, but I have enjoyed your books, Robert. In fact, we do, you know, but we also do sell books. So we sell your books, the ones that are published. Yeah, actually, I was wondering why they didn't tell me about that micro book. So we do sell Robert's books through the website, growingformarket.com. In fact, subscribers always get 20% off all of our books, both as a you know little perk for subscribers and also to keep us competitive with the jungle-themed retailers out there. If you are interested in Robert's books, you can get them from us. You get them wherever fine books are sold. So thank you so much for, for uh, being with us today, Robert. Oh, but I did want to ask, how can people find you on, I know you mentioned a YouTube channel. Can you just quickly tell us where people people can find you on social media or YouTube or, or other places? Sure. Garden Fundamentals is my main handle. So I have a YouTube channel, a blog uh, under those names. People can come to my Facebook group called Garden Fundamentals, and you can ask questions there. I'm on there all day long. And I also have a blog called GardenMyths.com, which is where all this thing started, uh, where I do myth busting. And there's some like 500 different articles on there. There is one, for instance, on those herbicides we talked about, uh, herbicides in straw and and what they are and how to recognize them and so on. So a lot of those sort of things, uh, if, if they're myth-based, they'll be on that site, gardenmyths.com. All right. There you go, folks. Robert, thank you for being with us. And uh, and we'll uh, we'll bug you when your micro book comes out and, and uh, maybe you'll, you can uh, come back on the pod. That, that'd be great. Good idea. We'll see you in the fall, hopefully. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Oh, good. All right. Thanks, Robert. Thank you for joining us on the Growing for Market podcast. For more tips and tricks from farmer to farmer, check out our magazine at growingformarket.com. If you're not familiar with us, you can request a free print or digital copy from the website. Whether you're a commercial grower or just want to grow like one, subscribe to Growing for Market for the nitty gritty of growing, marketing, and the business of market farming. And don't forget to visit our podcast collaborator, NeverSync Farm, for the best in farm tools designed by farmers at neversinktools.com.